One of the reasons I chose to use the four horsemen of the apocalypse is because the world around us is filled with difficulties, and sometimes in church it can be very tempting to look inwards, to focus on that which is holy and good and in the scriptures, and to shelter ourselves from the harsh realities of the world around us. And so in this, our second in the series, we turn to the red horse, the bringer of war. And our reflection uses Psalm 18 and the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5. You are listening to a sermon from the Pilgrim Path with your preacher Samuel S. Thorpe. May I speak in the name of God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. This week, we have had the first flurries of snow here in Dis. The sun sets before 4pm, and wherever you look, social media, on TV, walking down the street, everything is shouting Christmas offers. Day by day we listen to the news to find out whether or not Christmas will happen and what restrictions we might find ourselves under. While the evenings seem to linger, the days flicker on by quickly. Yet we have gathered here together in church to intentionally slow down. No matter what is going on in the world, or in our lives outside these walls, when we walk through those doors into this sacred space where generations of Christians have faithfully said their prayers and worshipped God, we find ourselves able to rest for a while in a moment which is somehow entwined with eternity, with the presence of God himself. As such, while the world hurries on and along, we find ourselves on this second Sunday of Advent, waiting. It's not that the church is an escape from the world, though it can be a refuge for us, but rather in prayer and worship, we are anchored in such a way as to be able to endure patiently in the world. And such waiting in the world is the heart of our Advent theme this year. And for it, we're using as our guide the dramatic vision of John in Revelation chapter 6 of the four horsemen of the apocalypse. There are four horses, white, red, black, and green, with four riders, which bring four disasters upon the world, conquest, war, famine, and death. And our reflections are not trying to use this scene to predict the future. Rather, we're considering the themes of each and recognizing that they are persistent challenges which we all must face, directly or indirectly, and to ask ourselves what it means to live with faith in the presence of such evils. Last week, we considered the white horse, which you can see on the screen, And that was the theme of conquest, particularly of being oppressed, and how Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom of heaven was not a series of abstract, pithy platitudes, 
but was spoken in the context of oppression. And indeed, he was himself ultimately unjustly executed. These themes are unpalatable, especially when we peer behind the romanticized veneer that culture wraps them in. But the gospel is unafraid of getting stuck into the nitty-gritty of our humanity. And so today we turn to the red horse. John writes, I heard the second living creature call out, Come! And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people would slaughter one another, and he was given a great sword. Thus, as we wait in the world, we consider what it means to live with faith in a world of war. Perhaps more than any other of our topics, we have to start by acknowledging something which many might find almost more troubling than war itself, especially when for us war is something which often happens somewhere else. We have to recognize that people have different perspectives on whether or not war is necessarily a bad thing. Peace is preferable, but conscientious objectors to war are regarded either as noble or shameful. The loss of human life is undesirable, but are there circumstances in which it becomes necessary to kill in order to secure access to vital or valuable resources? Perhaps there are ideals and values which are worth killing and dying for, ideologies to preserve or ideologies to prevent. War is a horrible thing, except when it isn't. And truly understanding that is something which may well be impossible for anyone who hasn't fought in war themselves. That said, there's often something very appealing about the military for many young people. Indeed, until I found that my deafness would preclude me from active duty, that was a path which I considered walking myself. War is a complex subject. It's heavily conditioned in our minds by the time in which we were born. Some of you have childhood memories of the Second World War. Others of you, your youth was defined by the post-war era, the next decade or so. While for others, you may find that your youth was defined more by the tensions of the Cold War. For myself, coming home from school aged eight, to find my father watching the news of the second plane crashing into the towers, that was the moment which I became aware of the wars out there and which has shaped my generation. Our perceptions of war are also heavily conditioned by our politics, by the financial markets, and by the media. What they show us, how they explain it to us, and what we remain unaware of. General Douglas MacArthur's campaign in the Pacific Theatre is a prime example of presenting a self-consciously historic life to the media, declaring confidently, I shall return to the Philippines, despite his desperate escape 
and the fraught reality of his men in foxholes as grenades and unseen snipers picked off their comrades. And in truth, war has always had this hazy tangle of romanticized legend and the relentlessly tiresome slog of sweat, blood and tears sprinkled with adrenaline. On the one hand, we think of David and Goliath, of the 300 Spartans at Vermuffelin. We think of the Viking berserker of Stamford Bridge, of Wellington at Waterloo, or of special forces operators like Dick Thompson surviving against all odds in Vietnam. On the other, we think of 1066, the sinking of the Mary Rose, the battles of Saratoga, or those places which have become synonymous with slaughter. Passchendaele, the Somme, the beaches of Normandy, and the cities of Berlin and Stalingrad. Names from history books is one thing, but listening to the interviews of people sharing their stories is another. And there's recorded interviews available not just from more recent wars and the world wars, but even going back as far as the Boer War and the American Civil War. Being able to listen to accounts of battles from 150 years ago by someone who was there is truly remarkable, and it challenges us to put aside our subtle snobbery that people of the past were somehow different than we are today. The emotions, joyful and traumatic, are just as real as ours. So with that in mind, our psalm gives us a glimpse into the emotions of David following his victory over Saul some 3,000 years ago. For who is God except the Lord, the God who girded me with strength and made my way safe? He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. I pursued my enemies and overtook them and did not turn back until they were consumed. I struck them down so they were not able to rise. They fell under my feet. For this I will extol you, O Lord, among the nations and sing praises to your name. Well, it's very clear that David understands his military success as a gift of the Lord God the one who has girded him with strength and trained his hands for war. Yet I suspect that this might be a controversial perspective to hold today, even if it is consistent with many other examples throughout the Old Testament, from Abraham fighting to rescue Lot, to Moses holding up his staff while Joshua and his men were fighting the Amalekites, through to the numerous situations in Judges, Samuel, Kings and Chronicles. Again and again, the Old Testament engages with the reality of war and often views the outcome as in some way dependent upon God, whether he be blessing them with victory or allowing them to lose because they had broken their covenantal responsibilities of faith. Perhaps this kind of thinking makes us uncomfortable particularly when we remember recent statements from the Taliban in Afghanistan that the rapid turn of events there must be a sign that Allah was with them and had given the country over to them. War, as I say, is complex. And bringing in the theological dimension 
can often tempt us to try and use the religious simply to bolster our own position. Either we say, God is with us in battle, as in the Old Testament, and failure is due to a lack of faith. Or we can withdraw the divine from the scriptures and say, it was a psychological projection of people in the past, attributing things to God wrongly or mistakenly. Thereby, David can have his understanding, and we can have ours. The other temptation might be to pit our gospel passage against David. After all, in the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Perhaps this is in conflict, pun intended, with Psalm 18. Some would say that it's self-evident that being a meek peacemaker is the opposite of being trained for war. Indeed, I often hear a similar idea from people that the Old Testament is somehow wrong about God and that Jesus came to correct all of the mistakes. Historically, this is called Marcionism, and it has been resoundingly rejected by the church from the second century onward. And it is particularly indefensible in this case, as just a few verses after today's reading in Matthew, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So when we reflect on the Beatitudes, we don't have the luxury of discarding the Psalms and difficult passages from the Old Testament. Rather, we have to ponder how they can all be consistent with our God. Personally, I would be inclined to ban the word meek as a translation here, for the English use of that word has changed and no longer carries the same connotations. The underlying Greek, praus, has no sense of weakness, but rather of self-control, finding that middle point between being incapable of righteous indignation and being over-the-top zealously angry. In that self-control, we can choose to forgive rather than take revenge. We can exercise mercy and clemency rather than unjustly punishing. That is, we can live as peacemakers. The Beatitudes are not about extolling weakness and tragedy. They are a commitment from Jesus that God does not shy away from the faithful in those situations of weakness and tragedy. And in the midst of them, he shall bless them. As Paul says to Timothy, Train yourselves, therefore, in godliness, for while physical training is of some value, godliness is valuable in every way, holding promise for both the present life and for life to come. This saying is sure and worthy of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and struggle, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the saviour of all people, 
especially of those who believe. War, it is a complicated subject. And for the Christian, I'm afraid, there is no straightforward or simple answer. But conflict has been and shall continue to remain a constant reality until Christ comes again. So the question becomes less, will war be a reality? And more, what kind of people will we be revealed to be as we live within and respond to conflict? After all, conflict and war has always been a crucible through which character is revealed. Will we, like General MacArthur, try to present a heroic image of ourselves, even as we fail? Will we be humble in our victories, like David, and praise God for our success? Are we willing to emulate the example of Christ, recognizing that despite the full power and authority he had as God to perform signs and wonders, he was prepared to discipline himself to be subjected to death upon the cross, so that by his resurrection he might win for us the greatest war of all, that against the powers of sin, death, and the forces of darkness, which strive to keep us from the presence of God. This Advent, as we wait in the world, might I encourage you this week to take some time to reflect on the arguments and conflicts that you might find yourselves in presently. And consider, how do you come across? What is revealed about your character in your response? Perhaps you're handling things well. Perhaps you need to change tack. Remember that though you are, remember though that you are not alone. Pray and ask God to be with you and that you may be found to be a person of faith who strives to be a peacemaker to the glory of God. For as, as Paul says in Romans 5, therefore since we are justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have obtained access to this grace in which we stand. And we boast of our hope in the sharing the glory of God, not only of that, but we also boast in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. So let us come to the Eucharist and be renewed in hope as we wait in the world this Advent. And I invite you to join me again next week as we move from the human evils of conquest and war to consider the black horse and its rider who brings the natural disaster of famine to the world. Amen. <laughs>